0: Today we are back in First Peter. It's been a while, and um, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to First Peter chapter two, and we are going to uh, finish up First Peter chapter two, verses eleven to twenty-five today. And the very first verse that we see in this section. Um, is, it's kind of a transition verse. We, we, this is a, a reference, reference back to the beginning of 1 Peter, and I'm going to give you a little bit of that recap again. Um, and then we're going to lean into the the shift that, that Peter is going to bring us through as we go into deeper into the book of 1 Peter. But he starts off here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, which wage war against your soul. Now, when we started out the book of First Peter, we talked about being exiles. In fact, uh, there was a the very first full uh, message that we had in First Peter, First Peter one one to five. The title of the message was embracing our exile. Because that phrase, uh, that, that descriptor that he uses to call out to those people, he says that they're exiles, that starts from the beginning of the book. Now, an exile is somebody who has been run out of a place where they once belonged. They used to have a spot where they fit, and now they no longer are welcome there. And at one time, the reason he calls Christians exiles is because he says, at one time we were embraced by the world that rejects Jesus. But when we embrace Jesus as the Lord of our lives, we're rejected by the world that doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And if you've um, experienced that in your life, you know what he's talking about. You can resonate with that. And in its place, where we were once part of that world, we now become a part of a new world. uh, Having been given the privilege of being God's very own chosen people. That's what he says back there in verse nine of, of chapter two. And because of that, we have hope. But what he also tells us here is he says, not only are you exiles, but you're sojourners. A sojourner is somebody who's just on a journey. Uh, that's, that's what that means, on a journey, passing through this life. And, and we are now citizens of heaven. We're, we're part of a kingdom that has, is breaking into this world, but isn't here yet in its completion. And that's what we feel. That's what the tension that we feel living in this world. We understand that there's things like illness and viruses and death and pain and suffering and all these things that we don't want in this world. This is part of the the conflict that's here. And while we're on our journey, there's going to be things in this environment around us that will wage war against us, against our souls. And so what Peter first says is, he, he says, hey, abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's what he says there in verse 11. Just stay away from them. Don't indulge in these passions that wage war against your soul. Now typically, when we think of that phrase, the passions of the flesh, we think of things like lust, and greed, and envy, or excess, fleshly sensual things that just drive us to do all kinds of stuff. The obvious Outward passions okay and, and many of those things are, are private private passions in our hearts but there's also a, there, there are deeper things in our hearts warring against our souls that we try to to comfort and placate um, with the shallower external passions there's other things like like insecurities in our hearts or feelings of abandonment or regret. Sorrow. These are things that we feel deeply. Internal passions run wild in our hearts also, but they're harder to locate. It's one thing if you're just like, I'm so greedy. I just see that there's greed in my heart and all I want is materialistic things and money and money and I don't care what it does to other people. That's easier to see. It's external. But sometimes some of those deep things, the regret, the sorrow in our hearts, they're hard to put our finger on. And sometimes they pile up on us deep in our souls so much that it just they bury us. And we can't, we can't get out from under them. But God can heal even those places. Not just the external problems that we have, but the internal problems that we have. And yes, God will change your behaviors, all those external things, but he's most concerned with healing your heart. Because when he heals your heart, then it takes away a lot of those other things that we've used to try to comfort ourselves with. Now, here's the thing about this passage, what we're looking at here today. While Peter is undoubtedly including those things, that's not what we're going to talk about, mostly here today. Um, instead, what he's going to emphasize is these other sorts of passions. These these passions that are part of our public conduct, the way that we interact with other people outwardly to, to, to the world and community around us. So these passions in public attack our ability to fulfill the mission that we've been given in this world. And so we talked about a lot last week. And as we've talked about the mission of the church and the point of the church, we've all been given this mission from God. But some of these other passions that stir up keep us from doing what we're called to do, to bring the light of the gospel message to the world around us. I think that you see this a lot as an example in social media right now. You'll see people, the way they want to interact with the rest of the world, and it's nameless, faceless most of the time, is they'll start just ranting about whatever it is, whether it's political or social, and you just hear this fire and fury that's coming out of these people. And a lot of times it's Christians. Christians are not immune from it either. And what they're doing is they're grabbing onto these passions that are just burning in them, but they're just spewing it out on everybody else around them. And what Peter's talking about here is he's talking about those things. The way that we indulge those passions of lashing out at other people and reacting um, instead of responding. These are the things that we're going to talk about. There's so much fire in all that. Now, to remind you of who Peter was writing this letter to, we saw at the very beginning of, of our study that he was writing to a group of Christians living in five regions in what is, modern-day Turkey, all right? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these people, way back in ancient Turkey, they were some of the first Christians in the world, all right? Almost certainly, they were probably the first Christians in their part of the world because this letter was written in the 60s, and I don't mean the 1960s or even the 1760s, the 60s. Like, 20 or 30 years after Jesus walked on the planet, okay, in the 60s. And the struggle and the persecution that they were experiencing as these these Christians with no other, you know, history of of church or Christianity behind them, the, the struggle and persecution that they were experiencing was new to them. And they weren't sure how to handle it all. And so Peter is writing to speak to them. This is how you're going to have to live as Christians. And that's how he started off the letter. He started off the letter by reinforcing all the powerful truths of the gospel message. He said things like, You've been born again to a living hope, you've been guarded through faith. You're recipients of an eternal inheritance. You're ransomed with the blood of Jesus. And as we've looked at over the past few weeks, you're being built into the spiritual house. You're living stones that are being built into the spiritual house that pleases God. And by the way, if all that if none of that sounds familiar to you at all, this week, go back and read chapter one and chapter two of 1 Peter. I know it's been a little while. It'll only take you a few minutes. Read it. Think about it. But we talked about all those things. So he sets us up and he tells us, listen, this is who you are in Christ. This is all the great things that the gospel has done and is doing in your life. But now is the spot where it begins to take a shift. So now he's gonna say, but we gotta talk about the painful present. Your eternity is squared away. Your future is gonna be remarkable. But what about right now? What about the struggles and the difficulties of living life as a Christian? And here's where he goes there. In verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's going to talk about some goodness. He's going to say, this is how you're to be. Your conduct matters. And you need to be good. You need to try to be good in this world. Now, is the goodness going to save you? No. And we're going to, we'll talk about that later. But we're still called a goodness in our lives. Our witness to the world matters. And it's not just what we say, it's what we do. Our conduct matters, the world will see us and they're going to have an opinion of us. And what Peter says here is, by the way, when they see you, it's not going to be a good opinion because they're going to reject you. You're in exile. You're going to say things and do things and live life differently than they do. And they're not going to like it. And they're going to tell you about it. There's going to be conflict there, but don't let that alter your good conduct. And where he says there, the day of visitation. Well, that could be when those people then meet the Lord and repent in this life Or it may be on the day of judgment, because we know that one day there is going to be a day of judgment. In Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, it says, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, it's gonna come where everybody agrees. And that's gonna be on judgment day. And on judgment day, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you're alive or dead, every single person is gonna come and bow their knee. And for many people, it's gonna be a time of rejoicing and it's gonna be amazing. They're be like, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And for others, it's gonna be terrifying. But they're still gonna say oh my goodness, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's gonna happen. And we know that every person is responsible for themselves. They, those who will reject God, are responsible for for themselves, but we are responsible for our conduct that it might draw them to Jesus. Our conduct. And if you're following along and you're filling the blanks, which are also on the Church Center app, under sermon notes or messages or something. Our conduct, how we live our lives and treat everyone and everything in this life matters. Our conduct matters. Why? Because as we learned for the past few weeks, we are the visible representation of Jesus to the earth. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing. And that's a big responsibility. What then are the passions that push against that? You might say, okay, well, you're telling me that like, I can have a passion that wages against my soul as it's trying to fulfill the mission of God in the world? Yes. Yes. Because we, there are passions in us that don't just affect us, it affects the world around us. Passions like a, a desire to exert dominance, to establish authority, to crush the Opposition. The passion for power over others, or just to control things and have security now, some of those things might seem like, well, that sounds good, yeah, we should crush the oppressors, we should do you know, we should be able to have our space and fight for what's ours, okay let's continue to go and see what Peter has to say. He says in verse thirteen to sixteen, be subject, listen why we do this for the lord's sake Peter here expresses a very interesting tension found in following the Lord. On one hand, we're free. Okay, the gospel message is we're free people. We're free from sin, we're free from death, and we're free to live under God. It's all true. But on the other hand, we also are servants of God. That's what he says right there, verse 16. We're servants of God. Servants are obliged they're obligated to obey their master's wishes. That's what a servant is. One commentator said this about that. He said, Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. Do we have freedoms in Christ? Yes, we do. But we also have responsibilities in Christ. Are we truly free? Yes, we're truly free. But are we truly servants? Yes, we're truly servants. (laughs) So there's a tension that goes here. Another commentator, Warren Wiersbe, said, a true Christian uses his freedom as a tool to build with and not as a weapon to fight with. Our Heavenly Father desires that we share the good news of the gospel with this world. That's the mission that we've been given. But in order to do this well, we have to build rapport with the world around us. We do now, I know that that might push against the ways that that some of you were brought up, especially if you were raised in a Christian home. Um, often, parents are so concerned with protecting their children from the ways of the world that they unconsciously or consciously encourage their kids to just remove themselves from the world altogether. Don't have anything to do with the world it's wicked, it's evil. It'll suck you right down into hell with the rest of them, you know? All right? But this is how we form Christian bubbles, as, as it's sometimes described. Little isolated communities that attempt to live in a parallel universe. They're like, okay, well, as Christians, um, we'll just kind of make our own Christian society that kind of operates right alongside of the rest of the society. And we'll, you know, if they've got um, non-Christian movie theaters, we'll make Christian movie theaters, and they got non-Christian concerts. We'll make Christian concerts. And They make non-Christian automobiles. We'll make Christian automobiles. You know, whatever. Everything becomes this parallel world. Um, to this day, if you go back into other parts of the country, you can find what are called the Amish, which are communities that are living like it's the 1700s, right? They'll, without a lot of the modern conveniences of life. They're they're in. You you'll be driving down the road and you'll see these people with horses and buggies and they're wearing clothes that look like their period clothes from the 1700s that they've made by hand, stitched by hand at home and you know they've got horses and buggies because they don't use automobiles and there's, there's a lot of these different things that happen. It's a parallel world. Now, as a father, I understand the desire for that. <laughs> there's some things about the whole Christian bubble idea that I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. But it's not the way we see Jesus or his disciples living in the world. It's not. Now, footnote here, because I know some of you are like, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I like this. I don't like where this is going. I do believe that in certain situations, uh, that a temporary Christian bubble, so to speak, can be a great thing. All right? I mean, let's talk about Christian schools, for example. Those can be an excellent place for a, a, a child to be able to have their, their soul nurtured and to grow their faith while sheltering them from the m- bombardment of the world around them, okay? So there's great value in that. It's not just for kids. Somebody that's recovering from addiction, let's, let's say, they might find that the best thing they can do for a period of time in their lives is to just surround themselves in a Christian community until they've built a solid foundation to move forward with. And there may be a time where they have to remove themselves from all those other temptations and things of the world that just suck them down. And and that absolutely can be the case. I mean, let's even take a look at Jesus. There were times where Jesus would temporarily remove himself from all the pressures of the world around just so he'd spend time with the Father and focus and pray. Now, he did that daily and and interact, and I think that's how we're, we're to be as well. But we're not to permanently remove ourselves. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. This section of scripture is sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus because Jesus is praying to the Father. So God is praying to God on behalf of his followers. And he's praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples. And here's what he says. He's praying to God, the Father. Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because, again, we're exiles, they are not of the world just as i am not of the world i do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one cuz that's always the the risk right when you're out there in the world the devil's out there too and there's a there's a things that are pulling us in that way so keep them from the evil one they are not of the world just as i am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth and as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world that's what we're called towards you can't reach the world from a christian bubble that's the argument a lot of times well we'll just be our christian bubble and they'll just see how good our life is and how bad their life is and so they'll come and knock on the bubble and see if they can get into sometimes that happens sometimes the lord draws them anyway But most of the time, we have to be sent into the world. We are going to spend eternity in a kingdom of Christians. Okay, the Christian bubble is coming. (laughs) Except it won't just be a bubble. It'll be the universe. But right now, there are lost souls that need to know Jesus. And how are we to go about that? Well, Peter teaches us that we're not simply called to enforce our wills. Or even God's laws onto the world. Instead, what he suggests here is that we're called to diplomacy with the world. All right? Listen to the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's all Christians. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And listen, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We are God's ambassadors to the world around us. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we're called to be. And I don't know if you know much about diplomats and diplomacy, but that's a very sensitive thing. A good ambassador educates his or herself in the cultural climate of the country that they're visiting. They study the history and the people. And the economy and the values. Why? So that they can have the best chance of connecting and communicating with that nation. They still want to represent their nation without compromise, remaining loyal to their nation, but still engaging with those people. And as the servants of God and ambassadors for Christ, the way we engage with the world around us matters. That's this whole call to goodness. What Peter is saying is, look, the way you conduct yourself, the the way that you're interacting with other people, that's going to matter. They're going to see the difference. They're going to know there's a difference. But the way that you do that is going to matter. That's honestly, guys, that's one of the reasons why we as an organization of South Point have taken the approach that we have in regards to COVID guidelines. I know that there are other churches around that have just said, we don't need those guidelines. We don't care about those guidelines. We're going to do what we're going to do the way we're going to do it. But we don't want to risk giving non-Christians in our community an, an opportunity to call us evil and damage our reputation with them by declaring that we operate outside of the local government's authority. I think that's rejecting our government's guidelines. That, that would do that very thing. And it goes right against this passage of scripture. Now, I I understand the argument, though, for the, from the other side, where they say, yeah, well, where do you draw the line? Can we give up too much? What about our rights? Well, let's see where where Peter continues to go. And he does that in verse 17, and then further, but he starts in verse 17 with kind of a summary. So he says, if you haven't been listening yet, and you're not sure what I'm saying, what I'm saying is this, verse 17, honor Everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. There it is. Peter's calling Christians to offer honor to all people. First off, everyone, everyone out there in the world. Also the brotherhood, that's the the Christian, the family of faith, the family of believers, the church, both of them inside, outside the church, honor them, show them dignity and respect and even honor for every human being that's made in the image of God. Then he says, and fear God. Fear God, allow the awe and the reverence and the glory of God to keep you humble before him, paying attention to who he is. But he says, not only that, you're going to pay honor to God, the Lord of heaven, but also even the, the rulers of earth. That's where he says, honor the emperor. Proverbs 24, 21 says the same thing. My son, fear the Lord and the king and do not join with those who do otherwise. Now, you might say, okay, well, you know, if Peter's gonna say honor the emperor, well, then that just, he must have a good emperor. That's what it was. He was like, oh, we'll get behind this emperor. Honor that emperor. He's really good. Well, when this letter was most likely written, the emperor of the world ruling empire the Roman Empire at that time, was Nero. Nero reigned from 54 to 68. All right? And just so you know, Nero was one of the most brutal, perverse, wicked rulers in history. He ranks all the way down to the bottom with like Hitler, Genghis Khan, some brutal, brutal human being. In fact, he would ultimately be the one responsible for the execution of Peter and most likely Paul as well. Okay, so Peter who's saying, honor this guy, it wasn't because, oh, he's a great emperor. No, it it doesn't have anything to do with that. The command isn't based on the merit of the person. It's based on the role that they had. So you might say, well, give honor to them. Why? Why would we do that? He tells us, verse 18 to 20, servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. That's what you would have been running into there with somebody like Nero. For this is, here's where he tells us about it. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he calls us to goodness in our conduct, but he also calls us to be gracious. Here, it it applies to those in authority over us. Servants, obey your masters, the good ones and the bad ones. Obey your governors, the good ones and the bad ones. Your presidents, the good ones and the bad ones. Realize that that's the way this works. Works. The gracious thing that he calls us to goes against our natural instincts. It does. It's one thing to respect somebody who's worthy of respect or to honor the honorable, but it's a very different thing when we're called to bring respect and honor to someone that we deem unworthy And why do we do that? Peter ties it to grace. He says, the reason we live this way, the reason we're gonna do this is because of grace. When we suffer for doing good, but we still endure, we're exposing the world to grace. And why is grace so important? Well, grace is undeserved favor. And the verse that you hear me out of Ephesians quote all the time, it is by grace we're saved. Amen. We're saved by grace. And it's grace that saves us and it's grace that's going to save the rest of the world. Amen. That's how people are saved. That's why it's so important and that's why it's the mindset that we have to hold on to. And I'll I'll just tell you, this is something that that I've had to grow in and I still need to grow in. I've had the the natural mindset that is the the way that it says, you know, um people need to earn respect. You don't just go around passing out respect. They need to earn it. Earn respect. That injustice should always be fought against. That oppressors should be crushed. And as long as I'm on the right end of the gavel, justice should be served. You know what? Peter had the same sort of attitude and same sort of experience. We see it see it in the gospels. If you remember the story on the last night that Jesus was a free man in in Jerusalem, When he, after the last supper and all that, and they go out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the the high priest sends the soldiers to come and take Jesus, and ultimately he'd be crucified. Do you remember what happens when they come and they seize Jesus? There's a story in one of the Gospels that tells what Peter did. Peter's like, that's not right. That's not okay. So what does he do? He grabs a sword and goes swinging at at one of the servants of the high priest, chops the guy's ear off. He's like, this isn't going to happen. Not on my watch not okay. Chops off the ear. What does Jesus do? Picks up the ear off the ground and supernaturally heals the guy and reattaches his ear. Jesus is like, Peter. Later he'd tell Pilate, he's like, look, the authority you've got is authority that's been given to you from heaven. If I wanted to call down some angels and you don't need a whole lot of angels to do some serious damage, I could call down an entire army of angels right now. That's not what is happening. That's not what we're doing. We have to learn that that's not what we're called to. Now, we know that God is a God of justice and grace. God is a God of righteous wrath and loving mercy. Here's what we have to remember, those Christians. I am not called to bring judgment on this earth. I am called to deliver grace to this earth. Justice will come one day and God will perfectly pass out judgment on every soul that has ever lived on this earth. But as a Christian, as a servant of God, my call is to be able to deliver grace to the earth. And that is exactly how Peter finishes our section here today. Verses 21 to 25, he says, for to this you have been called that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are called to bring grace to this world because Jesus brought grace to us. Amen. He suffered for us and he left us an example to suffer for others. Nobody wants to suffer. Jesus didn't want to suffer, but he saw beyond the suffering to the grace that could be given. Why? So that they could be healed just like we've been healed. That's why we're called to this. That's why we're called to live this way. Do you see God's heart for the world in this passage? He would love us so much that he'd send his son, step into this sinful, wicked world to be mistreated and ultimately murdered. So that there would be a way for humanity to be delivered from sin and death and restored to right relationship with him for eternity. So the question then is, is that your mindset? Or is it more of a me first mindset? I need my way, my rights in my world. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus was God, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, as I was preparing for this message, I, I kept coming back to my mind as I was looking at the goodness and the graciousness that is there, and it... I think of the whole idiom that you'll hear people say when they're astonished by something sometimes. Goodness gracious. That's what this is. You see this and you're hit with this and you're like, goodness gracious. This is more than what I can handle. I'm called the goodness and graciousness. That's what it is. That's what he's saying here. You're to be full of goodness and full of graciousness. Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we live godly lives and submit ourselves to God, even in our suffering, we're revealing grace to the world. We're following Jesus' example and being transformed into his image. So when you think about this, as we're finished here, as you think about this today, and you think about this going forward into your week, how might this apply to you? How might this change how you interact with the people you come in contact with? At work, at school, online, on the phone, work, social networks, whatever it is. Think about that. Are you being one of those people that are fulfilling what God's calling you to, of living a life of goodness and a life of graciousness, extending grace instead of extending your own selfish passions and desires? And my prayer is that God would would really give us a vision of himself to pursue and hearts that are willing to respond to his call. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word here today. And I do know that this isn't uh, always an easy message to hear. When you call us to extend grace, it requires sacrifice from us. But Lord, as we look to Jesus as our example in this, I pray that you would make us a people that can do that very thing. That our conduct even if we suffer for it, that our conduct would be good. Why? Because we have the same heart and the same mindset that Jesus had in the way that he extended himself and offered himself for others. Lord, we know we are imperfect and we are uh, sinful beings, but we ask that you would help us become good in the ways that we can. And Lord, I pray also that In that, God, that we would learn to be able to extend grace to others. That we would be gracious, even when it doesn't feel like the the natural thing for us to do. So help us in that. Lord, I also just want to pray today for any of those who are sick and need a healing touch from you. I pray for those that um, are, are discouraged today. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are bursting with joy and love for others and God, that you would continue to watch over us as a church, that you'd strengthen us, protect us and guide us and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.